X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Thursday, April 15th. Today, back in the day, on April 15th, 1955, the Umatilla Bridge opened to traffic. The Umatilla Bridge is the easternmost bridge to connect Washington and Oregon. Spanning 3,308 feet long, it connects Benton County in Washington with Umatilla in Oregon. Like the Markham Bridge here in Portland, the Umatilla Bridge is a steel cantilever. So you can picture the same thing, but three times as long. It proved both important and profitable for the region, quickly paying for itself in less than two decades. At 8 a.m. 66 years ago, cars drove across the Umatilla for the first time, headed from Washington to the Oregon side where inaugural festivities were taking place. Both states' governors spoke, and the bridge was dedicated in honor of local businessman and former Umatilla County Commissioner William H. Switzler. Today, southbound traffic on I-82 still uses the Umatilla Bridge, while northbound traffic is carried by a newer bridge beside it. However, the Umatilla Bridge remains just east of the newer construction, meaning it retains the title of the easternmost bridge to connect Oregon and Washington. And today, back in the day on April 15, 1947, Jackie Robinson broke the baseball color line when he started at first base for the Brooklyn Dodgers. In his 10-year career, Robinson earned many achievements, including winning the inaugural Rookie of the Year Award in his very first season, being named an All-Star for six consecutive seasons, and winning the National League's MVP Award in 1949. If you're watching any MLB games today, you'll notice every single player wearing the number 42 jersey. That's because it's Jackie Robinson Day. Though the uniform number was retired in 1997, making Robinson the first athlete in any professional sport so honored. Every April 15th, players don his number to honor his legacy. But outside of baseball, Robinson did not stop breaking down walls. For example, he was the first black vice president of a major American corporation, chock full of nuts. And in the 1960s, he helped establish the Freedom National Bank, an African-American-owned institution based in Harlem, New York. Not to be stopped even in death, Robinson was posthumously awarded both the Congressional Gold Medal and the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1972. Today, his legacy continues to inspire generations of innovators. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Chelsea Beaker, author of Godshot, and a finalist for the Oregon Book Award for Fiction. X-Ray. And first up, it's time for today's Quick Six Local Rundown. Portland Police Union headquarters was set on fire by protesters. On Tuesday evening, a group of about 100 protesters marched to the Portland Police Association building from Kenton Park. This marked the second night of abolitionist protests in response to the killing of Dante Wright. Protest on Monday night began as a vigil and ended up being declared a riot by Portland police. On Tuesday, a fire was started in a trash can near the North Lombard PPA building. Protesters poured a fire accelerant on the flames, causing them to spread to the building. 
Portland police said the building was empty at the time. One person was arrested for arson at the scene. And your daily dose of data. On Tuesday, the Oregon Health Authority reported 816 new coronavirus cases. That brings the total number of cases to 172,206. OHA also reported three new deaths. Oregon has seen a total of 2,449. Oregon's 816 new cases Tuesday mark a new peak in the potential fourth wave of COVID-19. The 816 new cases of COVID-19 reported by OHA on Wednesday marks the highest daily total for new cases in nearly two months. The state recorded a 6.1% daily test positivity rate, indicating increasing spread of the virus. Cases have more than doubled since March 23rd, averaging 583 per day for the past week. Active hospitalizations have also roughly doubled to 200 in the same time span. Governor Kate Brown has said she will not muzzle indoor dining and drinking until state hospitalizations hit 300. A state Senate committee unanimously approves bill for flexibility and for giving overpaid unemployment benefits. On Tuesday, the Senate Committee on Labor and Business universally approved Senate Bill 172, to allow the Oregon Employment Department increased freedom to absolve overpayments made to the recipients of jobless benefits. The state typically recoups overpaid benefits from future benefits payments. The bill is meant to reduce pressure on unemployed workers, especially when overpayments occur at the fault of the state. It's also meant to ensure that unemployed workers do not lose access to benefits after they've lost their jobs. Bill 172 also enforces a five-year ceiling on the reclaiming of overpayments. The state already has flexibility to forgive overpayments when in cases of collecting the money would be against equity and good conscience. With strong bipartisan support, it now awaits a vote in the full Oregon Senate. The Right to Rest Act died in committee on Tuesday. A public hearing was held on Tuesday for House Bill 2367, also known as the Right to Rest Act. After three people spoke, time ran out and the hearing ended without a vote being called. Tuesday was the deadline for bills to get voted out of a committee in the House or Senate. The bill would have prohibited the criminalization and harassment of people experiencing homelessness for sitting and sleeping in public areas. It also sought to protect houseless individuals' rights to occupy a legally parked vehicle. According to the Western Regional Advocacy Project, the act sought to extend the privacy rights afforded to homeowners to homeless people, for instance, by preventing the unlawful seizure and destruction of their possessions. The bill had overwhelming support from advocacy groups across the state, including the Stop the Sweeps Coalition in Portland and the ACLU of Oregon. The bill was first scheduled for a public hearing on March 9th. The hearing was canceled on March 8th by Judiciary Committee Chair Janelle Bynum. It eventually got rescheduled for this week, prompting outcry from the bill's many advocates. A similar but less expansive bill remains in play for this legislative session, House Bill 3115. This bill would require that, quote, local law regulating sitting, lying, sleeping, or keeping warm and dry outdoors 
on public property that is open to public must be objectively reasonable as to time, place, and manner with regards to persons experiencing homelessness. Local 757 Transit Union has reached a deal with TriMet. Local 757 has been advocating for over a year to save an apprenticeship program dropped by TriMet. TriMet stopped adding apprentices after the decision to drop the program was made. According to Northwest Labor Press, TriMet now seems to have acknowledged that this deprived bus cleaners and fuelers to advancement opportunities. TriMet has now agreed to pay $4,000 to over 100 service workers hired between 2014 to 2019. These are workers who were not given the chance to enter an apprenticeship program. The deal also includes pay raises for certain TriMet workers. Union members will vote to ratify the agreement by mail. Ballots will be counted on April 23rd, and the TriMet Board of Directors will vote on the agreement on April 28th. And some good news. The Oregon Senate has approved a bill to give tenants until February 2022 to repay missing rent. On Wednesday, the Oregon Senate voted overwhelmingly in favor of SB 282A. This extends the grace period for renters to make up missed rent payments by an additional eight months from its previous deadline of July 1st. The bill also bars landlords from reporting tenants' non-payments during the pandemic to consumer credit agencies. Additionally, shielding renters from having missed payments during the COVID era considered when applying for new rental housing. The legislation will temporarily relax occupancy limits allowing friends and family the ability to stay with renters during the pandemic. Landlords will still have the ability to screen guests. The Oregon House of Representatives will vote on a separate bill on Thursday to extend the grace period for commercial tenants to pay back rent until September 2021. Extension of the grace period is also meant to give the state adequate time to distribute an influx of federal rent assistance to struggling tenants in an effort to help make up missed payments and avoid eviction. Oregon is set to receive more than $500 million in rent assistance from the two most recent pandemic relief bills passed by the federal government. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, we'll listen to an interview with Chelsea Beaker, author of Godshot and a finalist for the Oregon Book Award for Fiction. She spoke with Carly Quadros about Godshot, motherhood, and what it was like to release a debut novel during a pandemic. In the dried-up orchards of California's Central Valley, glitter and soda is falling over a cult praying for rain. This is where Godshot by Chelsea Beaker begins. The book follows 14-year-old Lacey May through painful awakenings related to her alcoholic mother, religious patriarchy, and ecological devastation. Godshot was recently named as a finalist for the Oregon Book Award. We are now joined by that book's author, Chelsea Beaker. Chelsea, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. I am so excited. I finished Godshot last night and I am still recovering. Uh, Oh my gosh. (laughs) Thank you. For our listeners who maybe haven't read the book, could you describe Godshot? Yeah, I mean, it's about a lot of things, but I think really at the center of the story, it's about, you know, a teenage girl navigating this terrain that's a lot of, like you said, geographical devastation. Um, It's overrun by this 
fanaticism, religious fanaticism, and and she's motherless suddenly. So it's really about this kind of inquiry of what it means to be suddenly motherless. How do you navigate girlhood and then womanhood without your mother and, and without that presence kind of guiding you? And, you know, answering that question, the book goes down many roads. She really is searching for something. Um, so it's exploring, you know, faith and and like you said, the patriarchy and, and how to kind of find your own systems of belief when there's so much oppression around you. So what were some of your influences for this novel? Other books, movies, music? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I read White Oleander pretty young. And I think that book by Janet Fitch, and, and that book really informed me or it seemed to give me a permission to write about mothers and daughters in this really specific way that felt so true to my own experience and kind of that truth of, of the emotional feeling of what it's like to have a parent sort of detached but still in the world, like still living a life just outside of yours. Um, and how really that's about grief. But, you know, as a younger person, I didn't know to call it that. I didn't know that what I was experiencing was grief um, because I think we just have limited ideas about what grief could mean. Um, and certainly more back when I was a teenager than we do now. Maybe there's more language around it now. But reading White Oleander, Janet Fitch really hit the nail on the head with kind of exploring that emotional experience. And it made me feel like I could try to do that as well. Um, and then there were so many other things, um, you know, growing up reading Beloved by Toni Morrison, Angels by Dennis Johnson, Cruddy by Linda Berry was a real big influence, just feeling like these were writers that were really tapping into kind of this darker part of human experience that I wanted to shine a light on. So Gutshot for me is very much about mother loss, whether that's the loss of a birth mother or a mother figure or the ecological loss of mother nature. Can you speak a little bit about that connection and how that loss impacts your sense of your body or your sense of community and care? Yeah, I think it's really everything for Lacey May, the main character. When she loses her mother, it's almost like the rest of her world comes into this totally different focus. Um, you know, and that was, the, the novel isn't necessarily things that I experienced, but the emotional story of, of what it is is definitely what I experienced. And it really informs your whole existence, having lost a parent in that way. Um, and it really just it feels like this never-ending sort of longing where it is, you know, Lacey registers it a lot in her body. There's even a section where she notes that, like, the tension she carries in her shoulders, if she presses it just in a certain way, you know, tears will spring to her eyes, and that's where she holds her mother loss. And, and that was also my own journey of kind of in my 20s, you know, going back to the body and realizing that I was carrying so many emotions and so much trauma in, in my body, and I didn't even know that that that's how it works, but, you know, it really does. And I wanted to write a book that talked about that too, um, that utter full body experience of grief and loss. Um, 
and also how it can feel confusing as well when it's not as final as a death. Um, not that a death is any easier. It, it's just different. It's almost like this cyclical hope that continues to spiral because there's always this chance that maybe something could change and then um, a continual loss that comes along with that being unfulfilled. So those are some of the things I was really thinking about writing this. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I really think about how that kind of feeling of loss in the body and that almost never-ending hope, even if it seems really um, misguided to everyone else, is very similar to how I feel about climate change and how I feel about mm-hmm. the natural world changing as well. Um, and I was hoping maybe we could dig in a little bit more into what you said about that never-ending grief or in your essay, Mother Loss, for Lit Hub, you talk about how, how the grief of losing a parent is open-ended or maybe the grief of staring down climate change is also open-ended because you have no idea what the future was going to look like. How do we sit with that open-ended grief? And does the right process of writing help with that? I think for so long, the process of writing about it seemed to be all that I had to process it. Um, and it's almost like this constant discomfort that, that you feel, and I really feel this with climate change, where, you know, it's always there. It's always in our consciousness in some place. We know how bad it is, but yet, like, we still have to wake up and and do all the things. So, but, but then in those more idle moments, we come back to that consciousness of, like, oh, yeah, like, here's this really devastating thing that, that has happened, is, is happening, and is unfolding all around us, but we're still asked to be humans in the world. So how do we sit with both of those things? Um, and what I'm practicing lately, and and I don't I don't know that I had this awareness maybe when I first started writing the book was sort of just like you're saying, just sitting with it, like acknowledging it, inviting it in that discomfort, and then sitting with it. Um, I know for myself, anytime I've tried to reject or ignore or push away from you know, whatever it is, discomfort, anxiety, depression, any of those things, grief, loss, that those acknowledgements that are really scary and really hard. Um, if I try to ignore them or, or push away, they really only amplify. So for me, at least, it, it, it does feel like a practice of learning how to sit in the discomfort and, and ask it what it needs and, and try my best to just feel that feeling fully, experience it, let it run through the body, and then and then hopefully leave the body. Because um, when I don't do that, it's right, it gets stuck. It, it doesn't really go anywhere. And writing does feel like an outpouring of some of that, for sure. I am Carly Quadros, and my guest today is Chelsea Beaker, author of Godshot and finalist for the Oregon Book Award for Fiction. Um, so I was wondering, this book has deep emotional similarity to your life. It deals with motherhood and pregnancy, which is something you were going through while writing it. What was the experience of writing something that was so personal and so similar to the things you were going through in real life? Yeah, I when I started writing the book, um, I was pregnant with my daughter, my first child, and it became immediately evident to me. You know, I had written some scenes previously um, and once I, once I became pregnant and actually was walking through 
that experience and then and then birth it was really evident to me that actually I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> and, and then it really was a callback to a whole miseducation around what that process is, what the body does, what my anatomy even was. You know, I realized I was probably like six months pregnant and I realized I've never seen a woman give birth or a person give birth. I've never actually seen that Mm. um and that felt really startling at at that moment because i knew i would be asked to then do that thing and i i was just sort of confronted on this really personal level of how we just hide that it's almost this shameful thing that needs to happen behind closed doors or you know if it's ever conveyed on television it's a very like comedic or um desperate situation and almost always there's like a a cut and then there's a baby in arms right there's not really ever we don't get to see it Mm -hmm. um and so i wanted to write a book that was going to allow the reader to see it um and to feel it and actually write a birth scene and write about a pregnancy in that more bodily connected way um that would be outside of the narratives that we're more used to seeing about it, I guess, that that kind of make it into this cartoonish thing that is happening, you know, on the side of the scene. I love that. And I love that literature is that kind of space where you can dig into something that you would never see on TV or things that are hidden from us in the public schooling system or our communities, things that people don't want to talk about because of sexism. Yeah. Yeah, and I also found if you're ever wanting to see someone give birth, YouTube is a great resource for that. Mm-hmm. I watched many YouTube videos <laughs> leading up to giving birth. So there are obviously many traumas enacted in God Chat, but Lacey finds ways to survive, especially through female mentorship and friendship. Can you speak about the importance of these relationships, especially for girls who are deprived of traditional forms of care? Yeah, I think at least in my own experience, I, when my mother left, I really craved a woman figure in my life that was going to be this kind of guiding force. I felt a little bit on my own um, in the train. And, and I wanted to offer Lacey not only that, but also a window into a totally different way of thinking and living. So, you know, in the book, that's where these phone sex workers come in, um, she discovers this entirely different world, a world that acknowledges women's bodies in a really different way, that's open, that talks about them, um, and that sees spirituality as a much different thing as well. And so I needed her to have this some portal to this other place. Um, so is there, is there an element of your novel that hasn't gotten much critical press or attention that you wish people were talking about more? Hmm. Um, that's a great question. Yeah, I think, um, I think as a writer, I guess I pay so much attention to the craft of sentences and to language and sound. Um, I really hear the words, and, and so I am... I am really, a lot of the the work of this book is on that sentence level. And so I love talking about that aspect of it, but I think often, you know, it's maybe easier, more interesting to talk about other things. 
of the ways in which the content applies to the world, but also, um, you know, there is like this aspect to it that feels really artistically driven more on that line level that I paid so much attention to with this book and, and the voice of Lacey May really crafting that to be super specific. Um, so, you know, I like talking about that, but it's not something that I think <laughs> most people ask about or talk about. So I appreciate you asking that. Yeah, yeah. I love hearing how people want others to engage with their work. And I something that I noticed as far as uh, just language, the very base element was just how embodied all the language was. And I loved that about your writing. Thank you so much. So... I have a couple last questions before we let you go. Uh, one of them, if you weren't an author, if you weren't writing, what would you like to be doing with your time? What kind of job would you like to have? That's a wonderful question. Um, a few things spring to mind. I think that I really love stories. I wonder if maybe I would be engaging with stories in a different way. Um, I kind of have this deep and unexpected explored um dramatic flair inside of me that has like a craving to be in like a stage play that has never been realized I never did drama or anything like that growing up or as an adult but there's like a little part of me that feels like maybe in a different life that would have been something I would have liked um to explore had I had kind of a different situation growing up um and, and then also, I don't know, I love talking to people. I love processing with people what they're going through and really listening and um, offering comfort and, and things like that. I don't, I don't know if that would apply to some sort of, um, you know, care work or, or something. But I don't know. The first thing that popped in my head was kind of me on a stage. So take that for whatever it means. <laughs> Oh, I love that. And you're making me miss performance in person. I know. Oh, I, there's nothing better, honestly. I just, I almost always cry watching any live performance of anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you miss having uh, author readings in person? What has the rollout for Gotcha been like since you can't really go to bookstores or tour? Yeah, I mean, right when the book came out was when the lockdowns happened. So I love in-person events so much and I think there while we have come so far with Zoom events and it, there's been such a wonderful you know uprising of that especially in the literary community people have really risen to the occasion but I still think there's something lost in not being in the room together and so I'm really looking forward to doing that whenever we can um, and you know when I read I do like to read in a way that I hope is entertaining and, and is this interaction with the audience that feels really satisfying. It's almost like the final reach of the art project, right? It's like you spend all this time alone and then that is kind of a moment where an author can have that final interaction to send the work out into the world. And um, yeah, I mean, I miss that. I hope, I hope that it will be different soon. I miss going to reading. All right. Well, I have to let you go. But first, can you let our listeners know where they can find out more about you, about Godshot, anything you want our listeners to take away? Yeah. Um, well, uh, my website is ChelseaBeaker.com. Um, I'm on the socials at Chelsea Beaker. 
And I would just do a plug for, you know, shop, if you buy any book, mine or anything, um, please shop locally. We have so many great Portland bookstores. Um, and if you don't have a local bookshop near you, there's um, bookshop.org, which is a wonderful alternative to Amazon. And you can support local indies through using that website. Um, and they'll be delivered right to your door. All right, Chelsea, thank you so much for your time. Have a good morning. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Chelsea Beaker, author of Godshot and finalist for the Oregon Book Award. Thanks to Chelsea for joining the local. And thank you to lead writers for today's episode, Miranda Selinger and John Collier. Thank you for listening to the local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. And thank you, Democracy. Back to you tomorrow. X-Ray.